guys can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're finishing up our series on theophanies, face-to-face encounters with God that you'll find in the Bible. And this morning we're looking at the greatest theophany of all, the incarnation, the arrival of God the Son in human flesh in Philippians chapter 2. Now it's uh, 2014 and I have already forgotten how I used to survive in life without the internet. I was thinking the other day about how uh, there's so many things in my day-to-day life that now I'm completely dependent on the internet and I have no idea really how I would do them if, if I didn't have the internet on my phone. One example, this summer I've been repairing an older car um, and it's, it's kind of old, it's been driven a lot and so a lot of the parts aren't where they're supposed to be anymore. And they're kind of broken, they're not working really well, and so I'll crawl under the car and I'll look at it and I'll realize, man, I don't have a clue what to do because I'm not a mechanic, I I don't know anything about it. But the beauty of the internet is I pull my phone out of my pocket and I search on Google and I pull up Moz, I look at pictures of the car coming out of the assembly line, I can see exactly what it's supposed to look like. I can see what the ideal was so I can see exactly what's wrong, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be tweaked. I love having the opportunity to see that picture because it gives me a goal. It gives me a a knowledge of of what to work towards. You guys do the same thing all the time. So dependent on the internet, on the pictures you can find. You want to bake a recipe, so what do you do? You go to Google and you look at pictures of it so you know how to make it. The pictures give you a goal to work towards. You got to build a bookshelf or a piece of furniture. You go to Google and you look up pictures of that piece of furniture because they, they show you the ideal. They show you what it's supposed to look like so you have a goal to work towards. Well, that's actually exactly what you're going to get in this morning's passage. It's a picture. It's a portrait, it's a a picture for you of the ideal human life. So Philippians 2 gives you a picture of a life perfectly lived, the best human life ever lived. You get to see it in in this picture, this example of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. So we're going to look at this picture of Jesus this morning, this picture of the ideal human life, not just so that we know it, but so that we can follow it so that we can follow his example, so that we can imitate him as he lived the ideal human life. So look with me, jump with me into Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 5 as we look at, at our example, our model of the ideal, the perfect human life. Look with me, chapter 2, let's start in verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if the Bible was a mountain range that you were looking at, this would be the peak. This passage, this is Everest. It's the greatest passage you'll find in the Bible because in this passage, Philippians 2, not only do you see God in human flesh, Jesus, not only do you see who Jesus is and and not only do you see what Jesus did for you, but you get to see into the mind of God. That's what I love about Philippians 2. You get to see into the mind of Jesus Christ. You get to find out what he was thinking about life. You get to see his attitude, what he thought about himself, what he thought about his mission. Now, the reason that God reveals this information, this insider information about what was going on in the mind of Jesus Christ, the reason he reveals it to us is not just for information, it's not just for the sake of theology, it is a call to action. Verse 5, have this attitude, this mindset, this way of thinking about yourself and about life that you see in Jesus Christ. 
So just as Jesus acted in the incarnation, so we are to act every day of our lives. This is our model. This is the pattern that we are to live. This is how we should act. As Jesus acted, so we are to act. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the life of Jesus, this ideal life, this perfect life. I want us to look at it carefully so that we have a goal to aim for, so that we know what our lives should look like. And as we walk through this passage, I'm going to share with you five characteristics of the ideal life, five characteristics from Jesus of the perfectly lived human life so that you'll know what your goal is in life. So let's jump right in. The first thing that we learn about the ideal life as Jesus models it for us is in the ideal life, you know who you are. That's the first step. You can't do anything else in this passage if you don't get the first step right. You know who you are. Jesus knew who he was. You see that right at the beginning of the description of Jesus, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, now let me explain that just for a moment, a little theology here. When it says form of God, that's actually a really precise phrase in Greek. It does not mean in the appearance of God or in the likeness of God or similar to God. It means in the exact nature or essence. So what, what Paul's telling us is that Jesus is in his very nature, in his essence, he is God. Jesus is what God is. He, he's God, and that's not a surprise to you guys. That's really clear in this passage. You've heard that before. You see it throughout the New Testament. Common theme that Jesus is literally God in human flesh. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is literally God, all of God in human flesh. So God the Son and human flesh. That's who Jesus is, and it's important to understand. Jesus knew that about himself. If you read the Gospels, you will never see Jesus go through an identity crisis. Never had some moment where he woke up and thought, gee whiz, I think I'm God. This is great. Now, there's no moment like that. He, he always knew who he was. He knew it clearly, and you see that. He's, he's careful who he shares that with because that's big news, but, but when he's ready to share it, he, he just comes right out. He tells people exactly who he is. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus makes a couple huge claims here. First of all, before Abraham was. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, so Jesus is claiming pre-existence. I have existed 2,000 years ago. I was, I was in existence, but that's not the big thing. The big thing is when Jesus uses bad grammar. Before Abraham was, should say, I was, right? Past tense, but he, say, he says, I am. Bad grammar, why does he do that? Because I am. It's not a phrase. It's a name. I am in Hebrew is Yahweh the name of the God of Israel. So Jesus is saying, before your patriarch Abraham lived, I was always your God, Yahweh. So Jesus knows that about himself. He claims that, and the Jews get the point, right? Because what do they do? They pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy on the spot. So Jesus, he knew who he was. That's the first step in the ideal life. You have to know your identity. You have to know who you are. So who are you? Well, we're, we're not God. <laughs> These titles of Jesus, they're not true of us. Who are we? Well, we, we look through the Bible, and actually there's a lot that the Bible says about who you are, about what you are. It's more than I could cover in a sermon. I'm just gonna give you four, top four things that the Bible says about you so you will know who you are. The first thing the Bible tells you, back all the way in Genesis chapter one, you are made in God's image. 
You, as a human being, you, you are not just another species of primate. You're not just another part of the chain of life. You, you are something unique. You are something special. You are the pinnacle of God's creation. You are made in his image. Unlike anything else on earth, you're made in God's image. That doesn't mean you are God. It means that you are crowned with God's glory so that you can know God and represent him on earth. You as a human being, that's true of all human beings who've ever lived, regardless of whether they were believers or not, regardless of their mental or physical capacities, they are special, they are unique out of all the rest of creation because they are made in God's own image to know him and represent him on earth. So that's true of you. You are made in the image of God. Second, you are unconditionally loved by your creator. Again, that's true of all human beings who've ever lived, not just believers. How do I know? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, not just believers, the whole world, loved the whole world, every human being who's ever lived so much that he gave his own son to die for our sins. So that's true of all human beings, made in the image of God, unconditionally loved by their creator. But for those of you who have, who have believed in Jesus, who have chosen to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life, two more things that are true of you according to the Bible. You are a child of God. Paul says in Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Because you have trusted in Jesus, you have been adopted into the family of God. And as a result, all the rights, all the privileges, all the riches, all the inheritance that belongs to members of God's family, it is yours forever. You are safe and secure as a permanent member of God's own family. Fourth, final one I'll give you, you are a citizen of heaven. Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven from, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So what you gotta understand is this earth you live on, this is not your home anymore. This isn't where you belong. You, your home is in heaven with God. You are a citizen of heaven. You are awaiting a day when you go home and when you go home, you will not just be some wandering listless spirit. You will be given a resurrected, glorified, perfected body that Jesus will give you so that you can enjoy God's presence in the riches of heaven for all eternity. Okay, so when you, when you look at, at your life, at who you are, your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a person made in God's image, unconditionally loved, a child of God, and a citizen of heaven. And what that means is trying to make it really practical. What that means for every one of you in this room is you are special, You are loved, you are safe, and you are infinitely rich in Christ. You are special, you are loved, you are safe, you are rich. Now, why do you need to know that? Why do you have to understand that to live the ideal life? Let me tell you with a little illustration. My wife, Julie, will occasionally make for me my favorite dessert. It's a flourless chocolate cake covered in ganache. And men, if you don't know what ganache is, you are missing out on life. It is incredible. I love this dessert. The only problem with this dessert is it is a very small cake, little little, tiny cake. So when Julie makes this cake for me, I don't invite anyone over to my house. I, I don't want any of you to show up because I will need to offer you a piece of my cake. And if I gave you a piece of my cake, I have one less piece of cake for me. And and I really love this cake. It's a limited resource. And so I tend to hoard it. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment, what if Julie, through some culinary wizardry, could create an infinite cake? So every time I give you a piece, the cake grows bigger to make up for it. What what would happen? First of all, I would be really fat. But but second, and, and more relevant to what we're doing this morning, I would feel free to be generous. 
Dad, feel free to give you cake because I know if I give you cake, my cake isn't going to run out. I don't have to fear that by being generous to you, my cake's going to run out on me. And here's the principle. Here's what we're trying to get at. When you feel rich, you are free to give. When you feel poor, you are forced to hoard. It's a general principle in life. It's always true. When you believe, when you look at yourself and you believe that you are rich, you are loved, you are secure, you are safe, then you are free to give because you know you are rich. But when you look at yourself and you feel poor and you feel unloved and you feel unlucky in life, then you can't give anything away. All you can do is hoard everything you have to try to make your life work. When you feel rich, you are free to give. When you feel poor, you are forced to hoard. That's why you must believe that in Christ you are rich. You can't apply anything else in this passage. Passage stops here for you until you choose to believe that in Christ you are special, you are loved, you are safe, and you are rich. You have to believe that about yourself to be able to follow the rest of what Jesus is gonna do. Because in the rest of the passage, all Jesus is gonna do is give. Give, 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 surrender, sacrifice, give himself away. You cannot give if you believe you are poor. You can only give when you choose to believe that you are rich. Richly loved, safe, richly blessed in Christ. So that's where the ideal life begins. You gotta gotta know who you are, that you are richly blessed in Christ. Once you know that about yourself, then you can move on to step number two. In in the ideal life, the perfect human life, second step, you surrender your rights. We see this really clearly in the example of Jesus. It tells us in verse six, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a hard phrase to parse, to understand. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What What Paul's talking about when he says equality with God, he is talking about the fact that Jesus, as God, Jesus is God, always will be God, he had the rights and privileges of God. He was equal with God the Father. He had every right and every privilege that the Creator has. All the rights and privileges as Lord of the universe. He, He had all of those rights as God, and yet he did not grasp them. What Paul means is Jesus didn't feel like he needed to cling to his rights and privileges. Jesus didn't feel like he needed to protect his rights and privileges as God. He didn't need to hoard them. He didn't need to use them to his own advantage. No, instead, Paul says, he emptied himself. That's a huge phrase. There's whole books actually written on that phrase in Greek. It's so significant. When Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, he does not mean that Jesus gave up his godness. Jesus didn't surrender his divinity. You see that when you look at his miracles. Dude is crazy powerful. He can do anything he wants. He stops a storm over the planet Earth. He was always God, so he did not give up his godness. What he gave up, what he emptied himself of, was the rights and privileges of being God. He gave up those rights and privileges that belonged to him, that were his by right. He surrendered them. That's clarified by the next phrase. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant. Form, it's the same word we have back in verse six. Just as Jesus is fully in the essence, in the form of God, so he chose to become fully a slave. So bondservant means a slave. So what what we're hearing is, is here's Jesus, he's God, so what he deserves, his rights, his privileges, is to come to earth in glory and have every human being at his beck and call. 
Have everyone serve him because he has the right to be master. And yet he empties himself of that right. He surrenders that right and that privilege that belonged to him and instead he becomes a slave. He surrenders his freedom. He, he surrenders his, his time, his money, his life, his prerogatives, even his body to serve and care for human beings. That's what he's becoming here, a slave of the human race. He became a servant of the human race even though he deserved to be the master of the human race. What Paul wants us to see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus chose to surrender the rights and, desire, rights and privileges that belonged to him. And that's the second step for us. As we look at the, at the ideal life, the ideal Christian life is you must be willing to surrender your rights and your privileges. That really goes against the grain. 21st century American life. Here we are. Most of you are American citizens. You have more rights and privileges than almost any other group of human beings who have ever lived on the planet Earth. We're Americans. We have an incredible amount of rights and privileges. And our society expects us to use all of those rights and privileges to our own advantage. To to provide money and fame and everything that we want in life. That's the expectation is that you demand, you protect, you use all of your rights and privileges to take care of yourself. That's the American way of life, and yet it's exactly the opposite of the life that Jesus lived. Because he took all of these rights and privileges that belonged to him, and he gave them all up. He sacrificed them all to provide for others, to take care of others, to prioritize their needs and desires above his own. And so that's, that's the challenge for us. Are we willing to lay down these extensive rights and privileges we have in life to love and take care of other people? Now, let me get practical here. What will this look like? Most of the time, for us, what that's going to look like is are we willing to sacrifice our two most valuable commodities, our time and our money, which we have the right to enjoy. Your time and your money, it's yours. It's your right, your privilege to use it for your sake. Are you willing to sacrifice your time and money to take care of someone else? Are you willing to surrender your right to enjoy your time and money to provide for someone else's needs? Now, many of you did exactly that this weekend. This last weekend was the International Student Furniture Giveaway. We do it every year at Grace. Lots of people came out and helped give all of this furniture to international students. But let's be clear. As an American, you have the right to sell your used furniture and spend the money on yourself. As an American, you have the right to use your Friday night and your Saturday morning however you would like for your entertainment and pleasure. And yet those of you who participated, you you sacrificed those rights. You surrendered your rights to your money and your time to go out and care for people in need. Why? Because you did not want these international students sleeping on the floor. You wanted them to have a bed. And even more important, you wanted them finally to hear about the love of Jesus Christ because many of them never have. You wanted them to see Jesus' love in action. And so you surrendered your rights to your money and your time to serve someone else. That is the ideal life. That is the life of Christ. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. You surrender your rights and privileges to care for the needs of someone else. So those of you who who helped out with the furniture giveaway, thank you so much. Really successful year because so many surrendered their rights to care for others. That's the example that Jesus lays down for us. Surrender our rights. Second step in the ideal life. Third step in the ideal life, you accept obscurity. Guys, let me ask you, be honest here. How many of you, when you have attended an Aggie football game, 
or as you've watched them build the new stadium, how many of you have caught yourself daydreaming about being on the team and getting to run out on the field in front of 102,000 screaming fans? I have. I totally have done that multiple times, and I'm the least football-y guy you're ever going to know. I'm very small guy, not athletically inclined, never played a day of organized football in my life. I don't know how to do it. And, and yet, I'm driving down the road, and I see him building Kyle Field, and I dream about how awesome it would be to run out on the field with 102,000 people screaming your name. Why? Why do I do that? Because there's this little part inside every one of us that craves fame. We crave the idea of of recognition, of coming out on a field or going up on a stage or walking out on the red carpet to the screams of thousands of our adoring fans. But, But for most of us, we don't have the power to make that happen. We cannot make ourselves loved and adored by the world. There's actually only one person who has ever lived who could make himself famous, and that's Jesus. Only person who ever had the power to determine his circumstances in life. He could have chosen to arrive on earth in such a way that every human being adored and loved him and fell at his feet screaming his name. He could have chosen to be the most famous human being who ever walked the planet earth and yet he chose obscurity. Chose obscurity. Look look carefully at what the passage says, at what Paul says here. Verse seven, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Not not of kings, not of gods, but of men. Just a common, ordinary man. Verse eight, being found in appearance as just a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. That's a significant word in Greek, humbled. In the Bible, it's a very good word. It's very positive to humble yourself. Outside of the Bible, in all the rest of Greek literature ever written, it's never positive. It's always negative. The Greeks never used the concept of humility positively because they hated it. It was shameful to them. They lived in a society that was driven by rank and prestige and honor. And so the thought of a man humbling himself, abasing himself before other people, that was shameful to them. They could not fathom a man doing it, much less could they fathom a God doing it. Actually, in Greek religion, they, they, like us, they believed that gods came to earth. They, they had gods coming to earth actually all the time, but never in humility. The Greek gods came to earth as mighty storms and tyrannical kings and powerful warriors. Never in humility. It's Christianity alone that says that your God, the creator and sovereign of heaven and earth, humbled himself and came to earth as just a man. And actually, not not just a common man, actually lower than that. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, He, that is Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus came in meekness, in poverty, in humiliation and shame. To use the modern lingo, let's think about it in modern terminology. When Jesus showed up on earth, he was not part of the 1%. Even though he could have chosen to be, he chose not to be. But let's also understand, he wasn't part of the 99% either, not as we typically conceive of it. He wasn't middle class by our standards. Didn't have a house, didn't have a form of transportation, didn't have any extra clothes in the closet, didn't have a retirement fund. He had nothing, he was just a common laborer with the clothes on his back. That's all he had. He was a poor, poor man by our standards. He chose to come in humility and live a life of obscurity. 
And I look at that fact that here's the one human being who could have actually chosen his circumstances in life. He could have determined his entrance onto the human stage. He could have had as much adoration and fame as he wanted and he chose humiliation and obscurity. And that's incredibly convicting to me. Incredibly convicting because I know there's, there's such a strong desire in my heart of hearts for fame. I want lots of people to know me and love me. And there's a part of that desire that's not in and of itself bad. What's bad is when I let that become a goal. When I let that become my drive in life. I want more fans. I want more people who love me and know me and and adore me. That's evil. That's ugly. That's not the life that Christ has called us to live. How do you know? Because your Savior chose a life of obscurity. You know that he is not calling you to a life that pursues fame above all else. So this summer, I had to actually take a hiatus from Twitter. And here's why. Well, not that Twitter's a big deal, but... I found that every time I would make a post on Twitter, it would inflame this ugly, ungodly part in my heart because I would track it and see how many people are favoriting, how many people are retweeting. And if lots of people retweeted, then I felt good about myself. And if very few did, then I felt bad about myself. And I had to step back and realize if my emotional state is tied to whether people retweet me or not, there's something really wrong with my life. That's, that's not right. That's not good. How do I know that's not good? Because I worship a Savior who chose obscurity. So why do I care about fame? So the question before you is, are you willing to follow Jesus into obscurity? Are you willing to accept a life that is ignored by the world, that is ridiculed by the world? Are you willing to follow Jesus into rejection? It's a hard path. It's a difficult path. I know that's difficult to do, but that's the life that Jesus has called us to. Just look at your life. Think about your goals in life. Are you willing to follow Jesus into obscurity? Are you willing to be rejected? It is an anomaly of history that we, followers of Jesus Christ, are actually maybe a tiny little bit popular in this town. That's not how it usually works because we live in a world that was hostile to our Savior, and so our expectation should be that we will be ridiculed, rejected, humiliated, and forgotten. That is the lot in this life of the follower of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to accept that and make peace with that fact, that you are called to follow Jesus into obscurity and rejection? That's the third characteristic of the ideal life. You are willing to follow Jesus' example, follow him into obscurity. Fourth characteristic Jesus teaches us about the ideal life You are willing to sacrifice yourself for others. You see that in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Became obedient to who? To God the Father. It's God the Father's will that Jesus would be our Savior, and the only way for that to happen was for Jesus to die. And so Jesus became obedient to God the Father's plan that he would die, but notice it's not just any kind of death that Jesus chose. He chose what? A, literally, in Greek, a cross death, a crucifix death. What you need to understand about a crucifixion kind of death is it was the most painful and most humiliating form of death available in the Roman world. The Roman writer Cicero, about the time of Christ, he said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. 
Crucifixion was the most horrible form of execution available in the ancient world. It is a little bit weird that we decorate our churches with crucifixes and then we wear them as jewelry. So no one in Jesus' day was walking around with a cross as a piece of jewelry. It wasn't jewelry. It was a tool of exquisite torture. It, it was a method of humiliating someone as much as possible. It was reserved for the very worst of criminals because what do they do? Well, they're going to strip you naked and they're going to hang you by nails through your wrists, not down some back alley, but on a hill where the entire city can watch you die. And it doesn't happen quickly. It happens incredibly slowly. They watch as naked you slowly suffocate because you can't pull yourself up anymore on the nails through your wrists. It was such a horrid form of execution that was reserved for only the very worst criminals. And so what that means when we think about the death of Jesus, we need to clear this up in our minds because I think a lot of us make a mistake here. We need to understand Jesus did not die a hero's death. There was nothing honorable about the death of Jesus in the eyes of the world. He didn't choose an honorable death. He chose the most humiliating, shameful death possible. In the eyes of the world, he died worse than a dog. That was what Jesus chose. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he choose to sacrifice himself in the most painful way possible? Paul tells us in Romans 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. That is what motivated Jesus to choose the most torturous form of death possible. No one forced him to do it. No one made him do it. He chose it because he loves you. Because he knew that your sins were great and that someone needed to pay the price of your sins and so he stepped in your place and took your punishment for you. He died in your place and then rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven. So that God could give you eternal life as a free gift. All you have to do is just say yes to Jesus. If that's new to you, if you've never thought about why Jesus died, all you must do to have eternal life, to become a member of God's family, is just say, God, yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus paid the ultimate price for me and then rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is challenging us as we look at his life of sacrifice. He's challenging us to be willing to die to ourselves for the good of others. Now, for most of us, we're not going to have to literally die for someone else. But all of us, on a day-to-day basis, are going to have to choose to die to ourselves figuratively to serve other people. I'll give you an illustration of where, where you'll see this. About 10 years ago, I was getting ready to do my first wedding. And so as a pastor, when you're doing a wedding, you have to preach like this little sermon. And you know no one's really listening to it because everybody's just looking at the bride and groom. But you've got to do your best. And so, so as I'm getting ready to preach this little sermon, I get to choose any passage that I want. And, you know, it should have something to do with marriage because that's kind of why we're together. So I chose this passage, Philippians 2, even though it doesn't say anything about brides and grooms and men and women in marriage. There's nothing explicit in marriage here. I chose it because I believe this is the most important passage anywhere in the Bible on marriage. Still believe that today. If you want a good marriage, this is it. If you want to be a good husband, men, women, if you want to be good wives, this is your passage. This tells you how to do it. Verse eight, that's it. You want a good marriage? Verse eight, choose to die to yourself for the good of your spouse. 
The first time I actually preached that message in a wedding, I actually got up there and I told the bride and groom, if you want a good marriage, you have to die. And Julie told me later, you know, that's, that's a little bit dark on a wedding day, so maybe don't go quite that deep. But it's totally true. If you want to have a good marriage, you got to choose to die. Not, not just literally, but figuratively every day. Day in and day out, you must choose to put to death your desires, your preferences, your expectations, your ways of doing things, your rights, your privileges. You got to put them to death for the good of your spouse. That's how you build a good marriage. You die. Day in and day out, you slay your desires, your rights, your privileges so you can serve your spouse. That's not just true of marriage. That's true of every part of life. If you want to live a life that blesses other people, if you want to live a life that is full and is rich, if you want to live a good life, you've got to die every day. Put to death yourself, your rights, your privileges, your desire, your expectations to serve others, your roommates, your family, your friends, your coworkers. That's how you live a life that counts. That's the life of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a painful life. That's a costly life. There's no way around that. Putting yourself to death, your, your rights, your desires, that's hard, that's difficult, that's costly, so why should you do it? Well, that's the, the fifth and final part of the ideal life that we learn from Jesus. The, the motivation that we have to live this as ideal life is, is we live to hear the words, well done. Look with me, starting in verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus chose to obey God and sacrifice himself. He he, he sacrificed and surrendered himself and God the Father responded by exalting him, by honoring him, by lifting him up, giving him the name above every name. And there's a principle there for us. We're not gonna be called Lord. That name is only for Jesus, but there's a principle here. If you will sacrifice yourself in this life, God will exalt you in the next life. If you'll humble yourself in this life, God will lift you up and honor you in the next life. The Bible describes it this way. We we hear this in the Gospels. One day you're gonna die, and and then you're gonna stand before Jesus And at that moment when you're standing before Jesus, if you have chosen to live a life like him of sacrifice, of surrender, of service, then you will hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. That's what motivates me to try to live this Philippians 2 life. I'm nowhere near perfect. I've got a long ways to go. I'm still trying to learn humility and sacrifice. But the motivation, what moves me to try to follow Jesus into obscurity and humility and sacrifice is because more than anything else in life, my greatest desire is to hear from the mouth of Jesus himself, well done. That's what I want. That's it. That's my goal in life. Stand before Jesus and hear him say, well done. If you will sacrifice yourself in this life, he will exalt you in the next life. People who are living the ideal life are living for the next life, are living to hear well done from their Lord and Savior. So as you look at your life, as we wrap up this morning, I wanna ask you this morning, later today, throughout this week, I I want you to hold up Philippians 2, the example of Jesus Christ as a picture. Hold it up as a picture of the ideal life. This is what life should look like. And then I want you to compare it to your life. Where am I falling short of that example? 
Where am I holding on to something that's prideful? Where am I walking in vanity? Where's that area of vanity or pride in my life? I want you to repent of that. Confess that to the Lord. I want you to look at your life and ask, what is that thing I'm clinging to, that right, that privilege, that possession that I'm stubbornly clinging to when I know I could give it away to serve someone else? I want you to pray that God will help you to open your hands and let it go. I want you to ask yourself, I want you to look around. Who are the people that I could serve? Who is the person? Make it particular, make it specific. Who's the person that God has brought into my life who needs my help, who I can sacrifice for, who I can serve. Pray that God will help you to see specific ways this week that you can follow the example of Christ and serve others. All of this is hard, but all of it is worth it. One day, if you follow the example of Christ, he will look at you and say, well done. I want to close in prayer and ask God to help us to live lives that will bring his praise. After I've done praying, if you'll stick around for one minute, I have a few last things to say to you guys. God, we thank you and praise you that you love us, that you have chosen us to be your children, that you sent your son to die for us. We praise you and thank you for all the riches that we have in Christ. We thank you that you have made us your own. Father, we we come before you and we recognize that that there is uh, so much in our lives that falls short of the example of your son. This is such a convicting passage. We look at him and we see such sacrifice, such surrender, such humility, such obedience. And Lord, we see so little of that in our own lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would convict us. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would grow us and help us to follow the example of Jesus Christ. I pray that when the world looks at Grace Bible Church, when they look at each one of us, that they would see Christ, that they would see his humility, his love, his selflessness in us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would grow us and transform us so that we can follow the example of Christ. I pray for every person here, Lord, as they begin this this new semester, as they walk into the fall, I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to walk closer with Jesus Christ this fall so that we might bring him more glory and honor and so that we might draw more people to Jesus for salvation. Thank you for your son who is God, who had every right to be praised and worshiped and adored and yet freely chose humiliation and rejection and death so that we could be saved and forgiven. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Just say thanks to Blake for helping us as we enter into our next semester to give us the right mindset that success in our Christian life is going to come through taking our eyes off of ourselves and uh, putting them on the Lord Jesus. Want to give a great shout out. How many of you guys were at the uh, International Student Giveaway yesterday? Got some hands, got some probably some sore backs that are out there. We had over 300 international students show up at our uh, Anderson location and walked away with lots and lots of furniture. We had a great time. It was a great way to start our semester by denying ourselves and serving other people. Want to just highlight a few ways that you guys can get connected uh, with Grace Bible Church over uh, the next semester as we get started out. First off, there's always a connection card that's right uh, in front of you, in the seat right there in front of you. It's a great way. You guys also uh, know that we have the website. You can get connected that way by seeing all of the different opportunities for groups and things like that that we have. I know that lots of you have already downloaded the new Grace app. It's Grace Bible 
church dash dash Texas. So go and take a look at that. And it also has everything that we do. We want to communicate that as you guys get your schedules ready for this coming semester, that one of the things that we want to help prioritize for you is our grace groups. We have grace groups that meet on Sunday mornings. We have men's and women's Bible studies, couples Bible studies on Wednesday night, college students. There's all kinds of things through our college ministry to get you connected in our home groups that meet all throughout the week. And uh, if you guys have more questions about that, then after we get done here this morning, just head on back over to our Connection Center that's on the other side of the foyer. Uh, it's kind of like crossing a raging river uh, as people are leaving, but try to get back over there, and uh, we would love to be able to explain a little bit more about what we have going on. A couple of other things that are going on. Uh, we're going to have First Worship. And that is going to be on uh, Friday, August 29th. It's just a way that we want to kick off this semester as both of our congregations here at Southwood and Anderson, meeting at our Anderson location. Uh, We're going to get together and have some praise and worship and focus our eyes on Jesus that night. uh, Worship will start at 7, but about 6.30, we're going to fling open the doors and uh, we're going to have a lot of ministry tables that are set up so that people that have questions about what what goes on at this church during the week, Sunday to Sunday, right? And uh, we're going to be able to explain all of those things to you there. So sign up for that. Uh, If you do have kids that are zero to pre-K, there is some child care that's available, but you have to register for it. One other uh, thing for you college, we have any college women out here today? Okay, okay. It's girls' night out. You can see on September the 4th at 7 o'clock over at Anderson, uh, a former international model, Jennifer Strickland, is going to be speaking to the college ladies. Donna Stewart is going to be doing the worship. Guys, college guys, I want you to know what your options are too. You can choose between the Green Bay Packers versus Seattle Seahawks uh, or Arizona is uh, playing UT San Antonio. Okay, so those are going to be some of the options that you guys have. It's really about all I have. Okay, well, as you can see, college students are all back. We want to uh, encourage you guys to uh, change your watch to Grace Bible Church time, which means you move it forward about 15 minutes. The downside is that you show up every, uh, everywhere you go during the week a little bit early, but when you show up on Sundays, you actually find a parking spot, okay? So y'all remember that uh, get here a little bit early. Uh, things are going to fill up even more quickly next Sunday as all the students are back. Let's close out today by standing up, meeting somebody that's next to you, get to know them a little bit, and y'all go have a great lunch together, okay?